sigh of relief. It's a sigh of a new computer. Mm. A new dawn has come. Mm. Welcome to the Bumblebutt Podcast. Hello, everyone. Go to patreon.com slash bumblebuttpodcast and you can help us do stuff like get a new computer to record our <laughs> podcast on because I have to tell you, it's perfect. That's There's beautiful. no lag. There's nothing. And it's quiet. And it doesn't sound like a 747 taken no. off in the back. And, I, you know, I was a little worried by setting it there, but I didn't know if I should set on its side because it looks like the Best Buy computer that I used to work on. Yeah. But uh, it's, I don't even hear it. So It looks th- like a cash register box <laughs> is what it looks like. It honestly does. <laughs> but I love it. So go there. Leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us a review on Spotify. Bumblebutt Podcast. Hell Get yeah. after it. Thank you so much, everyone. Hell yeah. This week, I am joined by Cody. Hello. Hello, Adam. How was your week? Oh, my goodness. It was wonderful. I did a lot of research. Uh, this case, I'm pretty excited about. We're going to be covering the Beast of BC. Okay. Clifford Olson. And I got to tell you, Kelly, once again, major resource. Came through. Always. I mean, what a hell of a write-up. Well, technically, she should be an expert on Canada, right? Yeah. She and in fact, there. she writes so good and <laughs> summarizes stuff so good mm. that I directly copy-pasted Ooh. a lot of it into my script. Well, she's she's excellent at that. Yep. She has access to resources we do not, which is uh, fantastic. And everyone should wish her a speedy recovery from LASIK surgery. Mm. I was. It's funny. I was just talking to someone about that. Isn't there, didn't um, a few people we used to work with say that you have like constant dry eyes after it? Yeah, but that's only uh, temporarily. Select, yeah, that's temporary for okay. sure. Yeah. I've heard people say it, there's like a uh, light bloom around everything where it kind of <laughs> looks like you just got out of a chlorinated swimming pool for okay. a while. But that goes away from what I've heard and your eyes just work again. Gee, when's the last time you've even been in a chlorinated swimming pool? I can't even remember, honestly. Probably the last time was the day I learned, ew, this is a disgusting <laughs> fucking soup of other disgusting children that use this as an opportunity to shower and probably are peeing all over the well, place. Well, you know what? I mean, when in Rome, right? Yeah, just get after I it. I mean, why would you get out of the pool to use the facilities when you can just go in the pool? I mean, I've done it. Everyone's done it. But <laughs> Not pooped in there, I hope. I've never had a poop in a pool, no. It seems... I do. Would that be like the closest thing to a male water birth we can we can get? I went to, in the pool. yeah, I guess. <laughs> I went to a water park once in Egan, and it was the only time I went to a big water park. Everybody had to get out for two hours because some little bastard shit in the pool. <laughs> Wait, I didn't even know they had a water park over there. Yeah, in Egan somewhere. I don't know if it's still there, but it was a big one. Did they have that, like, direct down slide thing? Yeah, but not as dangerous as... Okay, like Valley Fair Action Park. Well, Valley Fair is still kind of safe. Really? Compared to the New Jersey Action Park, the now defunct <laughs> Did people park. die? Yeah, well, there was a lot of injuries. Yeah. I imagine. It, it kind of hurts. You should look up the documentary about Action Park. It's really oh, good. Oh, where can I watch it? I I'm wanna, not sure. I hate... After I, we, we talked about it with Terry, but I was watching that um, Jesus Camp. Yeah. And the kid was watching... I think it was called Creation Adventure. Oh. It looks like a little kid show. And they had like a little dinosaur reporter, like mag- making fun of evolution. Sure. So I need to find episodes of that show because that looks awesome. I'm sh- they have to exist somewhere. 
It, why would there be a dinosaur talking about creationism? That dinosaurs now and man walked side by side, yeah, right? Yeah, I guess. I feel like dinosaurs would probably fucking kill us all. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, they'd yes. be eating the shit out Food of us. Food chain. That's how it works. Right. Yeah. Unless we learn how to like ride them like dino riders, which is, I'd be fine great, with that. Which is a great game. And it's uh, eco-friendly, I mm. would assume. Mm. Mm. I guess you just have to feed the dinosaur. Mm. And then they poop and that, <laughs> and that grows mm. what they eat. It's a self Sustaining right. transportation one, system. One dino dump could probably like fertilize a whole Iowa farm, probably. Yep. yep. So okay. Let's quit let's quit harvesting pig shit. Let's get some dinosaur shit up in here. Some dinos and mammoths rolling. <laughs> I wonder if my mom would be like angry at dinosaur shit farms then. If it stunk <laughs> as bad as pig farms and poisoned the water as I, much as pig farms. I mean, when they shit half as big as her house, I imagine it'd probably have a lingering scent to it. <laughs> Do pigs eat every... Are they omnivores? Do they eat meat? Yeah, or just... they eat everything. So I, I have to assume a vegetarian's poop. Stinks? A vegetarian's poop would be nicer than a meat eater's poop. I don't know. When it what creates the stinkiest dumps? For me, it's like steak and burgers. Really, yeah, a lot of protein. Meat. Yeah, protein. Okay, I, I that's a good question. Fiber I know gives it me make, the toots, though. I know it makes stinky piss, but mm. I don't know about the other way. Hmm. I just assume if it if it's a floater, it stinks. If it sinks, uh, it doesn't stink as bad. I just assume if it bleeds, it leads, <laughs> baby. All right, here we go. We're going to crack right on Let's into do Clifford Olsen, the Beast of BC. I feel like I've heard this guy's name, but I don't know much about him. I'll tell you what. It was tough to dig up info on him, but and eventually I struck pay dirt. This isn't like the adults. Is this what the dog was based off? Clifford the Big Red, Beast of BC. <laughs> the idea came from a serial killer. Well, and they we both just... have to do with children. So okay, we'll okay. See. all right, maybe it does. Clifford Olson was born on January 1st, 1940 in Vancouver, and this New Year's baby was a bad, bad boy. Ooh. Since he wasn't born until 10 p.m., he was not eligible for the hospital's grand prize, which that year consisted of a silver spoon and a case of canned milk. Now, it was just for... Being born on New Year's. Yep. For if okay. you're if you're the earliest, the first born on New Year's Day. So now, probably in year 2020, since we've evolved, especially in Canada, probably get a ba- case of bagged milk. Probably a case of bagged milk and a <laughs> promise that you can use the doctor whenever you need to. There we go. Olsen was the oldest of what would eventually be four children, all of which grew up to be productive, law-abiding citizens. Okay. Not even his mother and father can be blamed for Clifford turning out to be an asshole. Cliff Sr. and Leona were lovely, caring, hardworking parents with no drinking problems, drug problems, or abusive behavior whatsoever. Cliff Sr. made his living as a milkman and was one of the last ones to still drive a horse and buggy milk truck. In 1940. Mm-hmm. Yikes. It was. I think it was for, like, the kitschy appeal at that point. Gotcha. Kind of like couples going around on the horse and buggy. Yeah. It was During... like, oh, man, my milkman's still a horse and buggy. He's an old school fella. Okay, he can be trusted. Mm. Gotcha. Later, Cliff Sr. would work construction and as a building manager. Leona worked as a housekeeper. They were just a hardworking Canadian family. Leona's my grandma's name. Really? Really, yeah. It's my granny's next door neighbor's name. <laughs> Is my grandma 
your granny's next door neighbor. Holy shit. I would say that if she wasn't um, in a rest home right now. Uh, Yeah, no, that's not her. She is in Minnesota, just two hours south. A little south, yeah. Yeah. Immediately after World War II, the family packed up and moved out of Edmonton for the sprouting suburb of Richmond, which was one of several suburbs popping up around Vancouver to accommodate the returning veterans. A short, stocky kid with something to prove to himself, Olson was a problem for his parents, school, and local authorities starting at about 10 years old. What? Okay, I'm just going to say this. Vancouver, I think they've, I know off the top of my head, at least four serial killers from there. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) what's going on over there? And like right across the border, didn't Green River Killer, you know? Oh yeah, he went in there too. Oh yeah. Fucking A. Clifford would go around challenging all of the neighborhood boys, and he would get handled repeatedly. (laughs) This gave him an underdog complex, even though he was starting all the shit by running his mouth. According to his father... One day Clifford said he was going to start boxing. As soon as he learned a few combinations, he went back and settled scores with the boys that beat him up. Maybe that's his trouble. That chip on his shoulder. I mean, you can say that if you're an NFL player or... NBA player, hockey player, like, I don't know about some guy who just constantly gets, keeps getting into fights. Just a violent little, <laughs> little psycho. <laughs> Clifford became the terror of neighborhood animals, specifically pet rabbits, of which he was accused of mor- murdering four. After completing eighth grade by the skin of his teeth, Olson dropped out entirely to embrace his life of crime right. completely. Eighth grade is tough. Mm-hmm. It's pretty tough for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's like when it's... When it's like, oh shit, now things are going to start to matter. It's like, because oh before shit, that, I'm a newbie in high school, I'm a freshman, you know. That's eight, that's ninth grade. I'm saying oh. once you get, you're scared the whole year of eighth grade because mm. then you got to go to the big boy school. You got to restart again. Mm-hmm. He couldn't make friends or keep a girlfriend, so he lived a loner, loser, mm. incel life and was jailed for the first time at the age of 17 in 1957 charged with breaking and entering. He was sent to New Haven Borstal Jail, which is boys' jail. Gotcha. Doesn't sound like a great place. Not super. So you're implying that he had some sort of girlfriend during that point. Yeah. He was a young, like, honestly not that unattractive. Okay. I mean, he's like five foot seven, (laughs) 130 pounds. He's like a really gross little guy, but not awful. Not terrible. He's like a Canadian six, maybe. Sure. Gotcha. Sure. Slight beer belly. Yeah. I would assume maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But can handle himself. Okay. All right. Almost as soon as he got there, he decided he loved breaking out of institutions almost as much as committing the crimes that would land him there. Over his career, he would break out of prison seven times. Clifford scaled the walls of New Haven Borstal home, made it down to the waterfront, and stole a powerboat, which he drove back to <laughs> Richmond. When he was recaptured, he wouldn't be sent to any more Borstal Boy prisons. He would be sent to real prison. Boy prisons. So he's basically like Sylvester Stallone in Escape Plan right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the powerboat, you got to take it if it's there. It's kind of the law. It's so awesome, though. (laughs) I'm going to break out of prison and steal a (laughs) powerboat. This is literally the ending of Resident Evil 4. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Leon. And I think... Uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 might end with you driving away on a boat and as well. jet ski, hell yeah. Or a boat, yeah, boat. Oh yeah, Metal Gear Solid 1, you're on a jet ski for sure. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't have had jet skis quite yet. <laughs> Not with the sea dudes <laughs> no. running around. No. This is a pattern 
From ages 17 to 41, Clifford Olson would spend less than four years total as a free man and would rack up over a hundred convictions, including obstruction of justice, possession of stolen property, possession of firearms, forgery, fraud, parole violations, impaired driving, theft, breaking and entering, armed robbery, escape from lawful custody, rape, buggery, gross indecency, and then, finally, and thankfully for Canada and the world at large, first-degree murder. Jesus, I guess the uh, three-strike rule doesn't apply <laughs> Like, you how? You don't even have a hundred... A hundred uh, Hundred chance, chance. Hundred strike policy. Yeah, hundred strike policy. That like, but how is that? Even with John Edward Robinson, they kept releasing him on mm. parole, probation, mm. over and over again. Same thing here. I feel like if your convictions are higher than my average bowling score, maybe you should just stay in prison. Yes, you belong <laughs> there. Yeah. In 1965, while serving three and a half years in the B.C. pen for breaking and entering with theft, he had a real stroke of genius. He cut his finger and dripped blood in his urine sample, which prompted a trip to the Shaw Nessie Hospital in Vancouver, accompanied by four armed guards. Right after the IV was started, as the doctor was leaving the room for a guard to re-enter, Clifford kicked out the window and legged it. So he pretended like he had piss in his blood. To get into the hospital. Flop that for me. Oh, he had urine in... Wait. No, he said he dripped blood in his urine, right? Yes, but you said, so he had piss in his blood. Ah, <laughs> blood in his piss. That's right. Gotcha, okay. From pricking his finger and letting it drip in the cup. Smart. Mm. This is a, it's a forehead uh, decision there. It's a five-head decision. Five-head decision. Uh, this is directly from Kelly. This is I copy and pasted this directly. He spent that night under an overpass to avoid helicopter detection. After being on the run for a week, on April 14th, 1965, Olson's parents were interviewed by the Vancouver Sun and made a public appeal to their son to give himself up. His mother told the reporters that she suspected Clifford was accompanied by an accomplice who was encouraging him to keep running. She said, He's a coward by himself. He's got to have a partner. Clifford never does anything alone. This is the seventh time... He has gotten away from the police. One thing you've got to admit about Clifford, he's quick on his hmm. feet. I guess that's hmm. true. Not only did his parents want him to turn himself in, they asked the paper not to publish their address <laughs> because they were afraid Clifford would try and visit them. His mother said, I don't want him around here. I've got two other boys living at home. The reporter wrote that there were no pictures of Clifford in the house and no other reminders save for some of his boxing trophies he had won in the early 50s. So they really just are like, Clifford, get the fuck away from us. We don't want you anywhere around us at they all. They were doing damage control for their own lives. Wow. Like trying to get him, like they don't want anything to do with him. Wow, Jesus, this is worse than Jordan's ex-wife. He was caught... <laughs> He was caught on the night of April 14th on the Canadian-American border in Blaine, Washington. Ooh. He had hidden himself under a thin covering of leaves for three hours <laughs> while 50 policemen searched the area. The border guards and police requested dogs from the RCMP, but their dogs were investigating a murder elsewhere. It was a Vancouver police dog named Tiger who finally found him less than a minute after smelling a sweater to get a scent. Tiger's handler... Constable Jerry Laffey investigated the area where Tiger had alerted, but couldn't see Olson. Accompanied by an American border guard, 
Olsen was discovered after his voice was heard from the pile of leaves saying, Okay, he's got me. Olsen told Laffy <laughs> and the unnamed border guard that he was afraid of Tiger attacking him. Mm. Laffy responded to him that Tiger wouldn't attack unless specifically told to. And Olsen responded, He's sure a good dog. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> Here's the thing. I figured they had, like, cadaver horses, to be honest with mm, you. The RCMP? Like, they sent out their horses to follow the trail of criminals. Maybe a horse is dangerous because they'll trample them or, like, drop kick them or whatever a Sounds horse Sounds good does. to me. Yeah, well, I've seen, I've seen John Wick 3. I've seen what a horse <laughs> can do. A horse bite, their teeth are kind of nasty. Oh, yeah. You'll get an infection. Yeah. Ugh. Prison became a revolving door for Olsen. So he made more than a few relationships with both the corrections officers in the prisons and the police officers that kept putting him there. He earned a reputation as a snitch and a rat. He would roll over on anybody for some attention and special privileges. How did he not get shanked? Or did, did they but not his shank time, him there? But his time in prison wasn't all shits and giggles. His informant behavior got him stabbed <laughs> seven times at the Prince Albert Penitentiary for ratting out the two main suppliers of the prison's drug flow. I feel like you should not be naming a prison after her fucking penile, Prince Albert? <laughs> penile piercings, but okay. What if it was literally set up? Like, it looks like a giant dong, and then there's just like... I don't know, something that looks like little piercings going down it. Perfect. Like, that's where solitary confinement is, where the piercings are. How did that become the... Did he get his dick pierced like that? Because <laughs> no. Prince Albert used to be a tobacco. Prince Albert in a can was tobacco. Really? And I didn't know that, because everybody, old people would be like, hey, do you have Prince Albert in a can? You better let him out. And I'd be like, I don't... I have no fucking idea what that means. I don't have a pierced dick, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I don't know. May I I don't know. Maybe it's just like a slang towards him because people didn't like him. I don't know. I guess who the fuck is Prince Albert? I don't know. He's a Brit. Oh, okay, well then he definitely had a pierced cock. <laughs> <laughs> Olson was able to turn that stabbing into a win for himself by petitioning the Saskatchewan Criminal Compensation Board to award him thirty five hundred for his moral and physical courage. Wow, they actually give prisoners money if they get hurt in prison. Interesting. If they're doing it in service, like, protecting, you know. You ain't getting that shit in America. I, I doubt they still even do it in Canada. <laughs> ah, true, true. In another case of prison snitchery, which would end up shaping Olson's entire life, Clifford enticed suspected child rapist and murderer Gary Francis Marco to describe his crime in detail over letters and meetings. Those letters helped convict Marco as well as teach Olson his own future method of operation. Yikes, okay. That's scary. Marcou had disposed of nine-year-old Jenna Dove at the Weaver Lake Recreation Center, which was a popular camping spot in the coastal mountains east of Vancouver. Marcou wrote in graphic detail about how he lured the nine-year-old from the playground in her trailer park to his car with promises of ice cream and spending money. He then raped, strangled, and mutilated her before leaving her tied to a tree near Weaver Lake. Marco even drew maps on how to drive to the murder site, finally allowing her body to be found. So th this guy was in prison or whatever, but they didn't actually have enough to convict him of that murder? Yeah, they couldn't find her. They didn't. Really? And, and uh, Olsen was able to get him gabbing away. He well, drew a map that like included dirt roads that nobody really even knew used. about. Yep. I mean, Canada, there's a lot of empty land up there, Hell but yeah. uh, 
we know Clifford's a piece of shit. I'm assuming because he's on this show. But I guess good on you, Clifford, for getting this, helping them find the body or whatever. And learning how to make more of his own. Yeah, unfortunately, that's a bad byproduct. Olsen, while in the pen, would also begin exhibiting and developing violent sexual behavior. In 1974, while serving a stint at the BC Pen once again, he repeatedly and persistently sexually assaulted a 17-year-old fellow inmate, and in 1978, while on the outside, he indecently assaulted a 7-year-old girl Ugh. in New Sydney, Nova Scotia. Ah, Clifford. I, you know, it's weird that he's ratting on people to, I'm assuming to get out or whatever. Attention and special privileges. This okay. is going to be very common Common with him. Attention. He loves if it. If he spent that much time in prison, you think he'd just be like cool with staying in there. They end up putting him in, <laughs> they end up putting him in a, like the rat section because mm. people constantly were trying to throw like either poop at him mm. or stab him or punch him or whatever. Mm. In October 1980, Clifford was paroled again and immediately went on the hunt in his old stomping grounds in Richmond. He wanted to use some of his newfound skills learned from his conversations with Marco. On a murky Monday, November 17th, 12-year-old Christine Weller was almost late in getting home from the mall. She had about three minutes before she was going to be grounded for sure, so she asked one of her friends if she could borrow her bike and haul ass back to the motel her family was calling home temporarily. Her friends watched her pedal away, but she never made it home. Oof. Her parents were distracted by other problems, like marital problems. Mm. So they just figured she was staying over at a friend's house, and it took the better part of a week before they even filed a missing persons report. Even then, Christine was treated as a runaway by police, but when they found the borrowed bike behind an animal hospital a few blocks away from the motel, they knew something was terribly wrong. God. God, you gotta... Uh, that's too bad. It's uh, It seemed like... People during this time period were way too trusting of like, you know, my kid might just be out somewhere or whatever, instead of like, we need to get the goddamn cops on this. And that's, but that's also the helicopter parents too, that'll call the police mm. at the drop of a, drop of a goddamn hat. Is so it better it's a to fine be, line. Is it better to be safe than sorry? Absolutely. I think. 100%. You know. Call the police if you think your kid's missing. <sighs> I feel like nowadays, especially, it's just like there's so many creeps everywhere. I, I don't know. I'm kind of glad I don't have kids myself, so I don't have this like constant anxiety about this crazy shit happening. <sighs> Ugh. On Christmas Day, a man walking his dog found a truly terrible present when he stumbled across Christine's ravaged corpse at the back of a public dump along the Fraser River in Richmond. She had multiple stab wounds in the chest and abdomen and had been beaten senseless with a belt. Is this his first escalation to murder? Yes. Is it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Olsen was also looking for love as soon as he got out, and in late November, about a week after killing Christine, he set his sights on Joan Hale while they were both drinking at the popular Caribou Hotel Lahey mm, Pub. That's where I'd be drinking. Any place called what the, the Caribou. What the hell's a Lockheed? A Lowheed. I'm low not sure. Heed. Yeah, Lawheed maybe. <laughs> Sounds like a type of Canadian pastry. I don't know. I'd eat it. <laughs> Joan was very, very recently divorced from an alcoholic abuser. The pair started dating, and for a time, Clifford kept it secret that he was very, very recently divorced from prison. When she found out, though, she didn't mind. She thought he was charming and loved his beautiful deep brown eyes. Olsen and Joan would move in together after knowing each other for three weeks. Joan would later explain in court. It was something I thought I needed. 
I needed companionship, and I needed someone to protect me from my ex-husband because he was coming around and bothering me. Clifford seemed perfect, so he's just... Even though he's probably worse than her ex-husband, obviously, he was able to con her, I guess, into believing he's not a complete piece of shit. And people see what they want to see. Mm. So she saw a protector. She saw all that stuff. She probably ignored all the warning signs right. well, to the contrary. I, this, obviously, we're not blaming her, but no. it seems like uh, it's a popular thing that, yeah, what do they call it, where you keep falling for the same type of individuals? Mm-hmm. What do they call that? Mm. I don't remember. Mm. So if she had a, a terrible ex-husband, you know, maybe she doesn't see the red flags with Clifford yet. It's like being typecast in a movie. <laughs> you just play the same part over and over again. <laughs> Early in the relationship, Clifford bilked almost every penny out of Joan's $43,000 divorce settlement God. and went on a spending spree accompanied by a drinking binge. He became even more violent and drunk upon hearing the news Joan was pregnant. The happy couple would plan the wedding for a month after the due date of the child. On April 16th, 1981, 13-year-old Colleen Dino was on her way back to her grandma's house after spending the night at a friend's place. Around 1 o'clock, while waiting on the bus, Clifford Olson drove up and called out to her. Three days later, she would be officially reported as missing. Not linking this to Christine, the Mounties were once again treating this as a runaway situation. There is some leeway to be given to the RCMP in this instance, as they receive over 300 missing persons reports a month, and 99% come back as runaways. Gotcha, okay. So, they're not quite as bad as American police during this time. And they're not look, they're not... They're not looking at them as connected incidents because Mm. Olsen, although he's a piece of shit, there's no like evidence or anything that points to him as the guy doing it. I would assume if there's like a crime or maybe they didn't have the technology back then, but now if you see a crime or something, I imagine this guy's face would come up instantly. Sure. Like, sure. uh, He's got a hundred convictions. Maybe we should take a look and see what old Clifford's been up to. Absolutely. Mm. Especially with the police having all the, like, laptops and their computers and stuff. Right. I I mean, back then, you'd have to probably, what, deliver it and moose back or whatever. Right. Horseback. It's going to take a while. No, they don't use horses. The Mounties. They're illegal. The Mounties don't use horses? Oh, yeah, they do use horses. What am I thinking? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either, to be honest (laughs) with you. (laughs) A mere two days after his dad killed Colleen, Clifford Olson III was born. And four days later, his dad would kill again. On April 22nd, 1981, 16-year-old Darren Johnsrud vanished. He was only two days into his spring break trip to Vancouver and was last seen buying a pack of smokes from the drugstore at Burquitlam Plaza Shopping Mall. His body would be the first found on May 2nd. A hiker called in a bludgeoned body lying at the bottom of a dike, cause of death stated as repeated hammer blows to the head. I, I really hope the hiker didn't call the police and be like, we've got a bludgeoned body here. Like, should you know that? First off, we've always said this. Hikers, why are you always finding bodies? No, mushroom hunters are finding bodies. Well, and hikers, too. Yeah, because they're the ones out there in the dumping grounds. <sighs> so my question is, this is the first gentleman he's killed, right? That's right. Uh, and the other thing, prior to the baby being born... Seemed to be a trigger for Clifford. And then after the baby's born, seemed to be another uh, trigger for him. 
I think he's triggered by literally everything. Everything. And okay. solves that by killing. Mm, okay. Well, you know, a lot of these serial killers, man, they just have like a little thing that just sets them off. So and then I, the red any... mask comes down. I, yeah, I, I don't know. We don't. We don't really know. Clifford's just the pure. What would it be? Nature born serial killer, right? Not yes. really nurtured. Yeah, not nurture born. Yeah, just sure. he just was a piece of shit yes. since he was born. He was born broken. Mm. Mm. Even though police already weren't putting these together, by varying the age and sex of his victims, he threw them completely off. Yeah. Experts at the time believed offenders didn't stray outside their preferred age and sex range. Consequently, no case had yet been made linking them. Honestly, I think that would throw people off today. Definitely. Because Generally, they don't switch party or <laughs> gender <Parties>. lines. <laughs> gender lines. They don't there. go from Republican to Democrat. <laughs> that's how. That's how you know we've been just berated by goddamn political news lately. Just bombarded. Mm-hmm. It's almost wedding time for Joan and Olson. Ooh. The night before their wedding, Joan's friends wanted to take her out for a bachelorette party, so oh. Cliff agreed to babysit for all of them. He sent the older kids out to the store to buy candy while he sexually assaulted a five-year-old girl. Olsen was asked to go to the Coquitlam RCMP field office to answer questions about it, but he simply denied. Since the child was too young to testify, no charges were ever filed. Wow, and this is just some random five-year-old, huh? A friend of Jones. God, what a... God, that's terrible. The couple tied the knot on May 15th, 1981, at the People's Full Gospel Church in Surrey. This wasn't their first choice, as they until very recently attended a fundamentalist church, but were kicked out when it came to light that Olson had been molesting several of the children. Not gonna lie, that's a little shocking that uh, the fundamentalist church would care about that. Well, they just ran them off. <laughs> that's all they did. <laughs> he was caught red-handed sodomizing a young boy in the sauna, but once again, no charges were filed and not so much as a complaint was submitted. How do you get caught red-handed and no, you can't Church. get charged? Church. Okay. All right. Already back on the hunt a mere four days after exchanging nuptials, on Tuesday, May 19th, 1981, Olson picked up 16-year-old Sandra Lynn Wolfsteiner, who had just had lunch with her boyfriend and his mom. Fifty yards from the house, the boyfriend's mother watched Sandra get into a gray two-door car Hitchhiking was normal at the time. Right, right, right. I for, you always forget about that. I mean, it was just a way to get around. Now it's like, even if my cars broke down, I don't want anybody even stopping near me. No, I don't care if it's a no. five foot one woman <laughs> that weighs 40 pounds. I just, I'm scared. I don't care if it's a guy in a tow truck. Just keep yeah, moving. Keep her moving. <laughs> Sandra was next seen at the Royal Bank location in Langley by one of her schoolmates. She was closing her account because she had just been offered and accepted a new job cleaning windows for $13 an hour, and her boss also owned a credit union. Okay. Getting back in the car, Olsen convinced her to go to his cabin in the woods for a celebration. This was all happening so fast. They parked and walked deep in the woods before he bashed her head in with a hammer several times. Olsen would later claim he was pissed when he found only $10 in her pockets, she said before she closed her account that she had over a hundred in there, and he wanted that money. Once again, with no body, 
RCMP chalk Sandra Wolfsteiner as just another teen runaway with no evidence of foul play. So he's claiming that he's killing for money? No, that was just... just bullshit? He's he's an asshole. Mm, That's just like the kind of stuff he'll say. He'll make up shit like that? I'm sure that was part of it. I'm sure he wanted the $100 as well, but that wasn't his motivation. Do you think that's how he lured the other people? Like promises of jobs or whatever horseshit he's spewing out? Absolutely. Gotcha. Okay, so you need to be careful... For yeah. Clifford in the next month, because unless it's on a, a good site, you don't be getting into cars with anybody who offers you a job. Um, I'll try not to. <laughs> it would be a month and two days before Clifford struck again. 13-year-old Ada Court was babysitting her brother and sister-in-law's twins at their Coquitlam apartment. She was over there babysitting so much that others in the building referred to the twins as Ada's babies. The next morning, Sunday, June 21st, 1981... Ada caught a bus from the apartment to go meet one of her friends. She seemed to disappear into thin air. Police were baffled. Nothing was missing from her locker at her middle school, and there was no evidence she packed anything from home. There's no way the RCMP could possibly classify this as a runaway. There just wasn't any evidence to support it. Was this all around, like, a centralized area? Like yep. the Richmond, how yep. big is Richmond? This is got... the Lower Mainland, right gotcha. in BC. So the, the like the Greater Vancouver area is where all these kids were disappearing from. Okay, I mean that's probably still a fairly large area, mm-hmm. but eventually you got to be like, I don't know, this is too many kids for mm-hmm. not to be connected somehow. By the end of June, Olson had murdered five children but only two bodies had been found, those of Christine Weller and Darren Johnsrud. 52-year-old Jim Paranto actually saw Olson dumping Ada's body. It was about 8 p.m. on June 21st when Jim, the logging camp chef, was driving his way through Weaver Lake Park. He turned a corner and saw a man bending over a young girl's body beside a black pickup. At first I thought he was in trouble, so I pulled over and got out to help him. He wouldn't answer me when I talked to him, and he just stared at me. That's when I realized something wasn't right. I got back in my car, and he got back in his truck and started chasing me down the road. Oh, shit. You don't fuck with a logger, chef, though. Mm-mm. Your ass is going to be fucking souffléed in a minute here. Paranto was able to swerve onto a logging road that led him to the Eagle River forestry camp where he worked, and he lost him there. Paranto would wait a month or two before deciding he should report what he saw, and when he did, police scoured the area and found skeletal remains whose dental records matched those of Ada Court. When police brought Paranto a picture of Clifford Olson, he blurted out, That's him! Without even needing a second glance. I. It sounds like he got pretty up, up close and personal with old Clifford here. Why wait a month or two to report that shit? <sighs> Well, we can say this for certain. If Clifford would have caught him, he would have fucking killed him. No questions oh, yeah. asked. Oh, yeah. Um, now I'm just envisioning the <laughs> when they're in the chase. Uh, old Jim's throwing like vegetable oil out the back window and Hell it caused yeah. Clifford to drive off. He's vaping and yeah. <laughs> smoke screen. <laughs> smoke screen. Throwing walks out there, <laughs> causing his car to crash. Banana. You can't chase a chef, man. They'll they'll get you. And he was in a truck on a dirt road. So that's always, you're always going to win with more traction. It's going to be about, it's going to look like the foggiest night you've ever seen with all that goddamn dirt. Hell yeah. 
It was the disappearance of nine-year-old Simon Partington on July 2nd, 1981, that turned this into a real case. There is no chance that Simon could be considered a runaway. He was four foot two, 80 pounds, and the sweetest boy most teachers and adults that knew him had met. Simon was enjoying his summer vacation routine. On this day in particular, at 10.30 a.m., he would have his two bowls of cornflakes, pack his new Snoopy book in his bicycle basket, and pedal off to his friend's place. Thank goodness the parents filed an immediate missing person right away. Report. The Partingtons really wanted their baby boy back. Well, yeah, you can't blame them. By the way, damn, uh, this kid, he's not very big. Two bowls of cornflakes? Holy I shit. know. I know. That's Fucking impressive. A. Fucking A. That's impressive when you're 80 pounds and can eat <laughs> 30 pounds of cornflakes. I don't even know if I can eat that now. <laughs> Maybe it's like a British bowl where it's like a teacup, basically. Oh, on a little saucer? You know when you go to... I don't know if your schools like had like a breakfast thing you could go in there. Yeah. You can buy the little box of cereal, and it's like 10 cornflakes in like yeah. $4 box. You know, when we used to go on vacation uh, up to Eagle Lake in Minnesota, we would always go to Sam's Club and get like three of those 90 packs of the tiny boxes. Oh, yeah. Dude, that was awesome. Mix and match all the tiny cereal you want. They definitely do not have those at Costco. Really? No. You get like the cereal with like two full bags, but I haven't seen the little ones. Maybe those are just like irresponsible packaging. <laughs> That's a lot of plastic for Well, no unless reason. you work for a hotel. Every single continental breakfast has one of them true, bad boys. True. You know what I like when you go to those continental breakfasts and mm. they have like the towers of cereal and mm. you press the button and it falls into your bowl? I would love Ooh. one of those from my home. Oh, that would be great. Hell I bet yeah. that's easy to come by too. Waffle machine too. Uh, you have one, don't you? Yeah, but I, I, I don't know. It's a lot more work to make waffles at home than it is to just... Scoop the batter. Scoop a thing in there, and then you're good to go. Somebody else more. cooks it. Couldn't agree more. Mm. The public was whipped into a fervor when they realized that Simon disappeared only a few blocks from the last known location Christine Weller was seen alive. Reporters began hurling blame at both their editors and the Mounties for not piecing together these missing children sooner. You can't blame them. This was the spark that launched the RCMP into the biggest manhunt in Canadian history, and at its height, there would be as many as 200 officers working the case from every conceivable angle. Jesus. Olson didn't appear phased at all by this new media attention. He carried on business as usual, even picking up a 16-year-old girl and her friend just five days after killing Simon. Clifford pulled up to them in his rental, offered them the usual $13 an hour for cleaning windows and the opportunity to get drunk with them. Mm -hmm. They accepted, but when he tried to fondle them and they resisted, he luckily stopped and let them go. Olsen was charged with indecent assault on the girl, but Clifford was still nowhere on the police radar for the murders of Johnsrud, Wellington, Court, and the disappearance of Simon. I wonder why he let him go. I don't know. I don't know. Very strange. Because huh. he wouldn't take no for an answer, usually. Especially do not once he got him drunk. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think he's just a pedophile rapist, or is he killing these kids for some weird thing in his head where he thinks he had a bad childhood, he's jealous of the kids, and then he's I killing them think, something I think weird. he's just broken. He's broken. Uh, uh, because, yes, he also is a... He pedophiles all the kids he murders. Mm. I don't know Oh, he I, does. Oh, yeah. I was wondering, because it kind of sounds like he just was killing them. But no, maybe, I just... There's no reason to go mm, into... Yeah, well, no, I, I, I know. I'm just saying, like, some people... 
you know, a serial killer sometimes is just like the act of killing mm-hmm. gets them their jollies, mm-hmm. but clearly he's they murder and the pedophilia. He's got a rape and murder. Ugh. Rape, murder, mutilate. That's mm. what he's into. And really, with the exception of the two being close together, there wasn't a link to be found. Mm. Even after the entire ordeal was solved, Crown Prosecutor John Hall remarked, Simon doesn't fit the pattern. He never fit the pattern. I'll never figure that one out. Poor guy. I mean, he fits the pattern of a young kid, doesn't he? A nine-year-old boy compared to a 13-year-old girl, 15-year-old girl, 16-year-old boy. Just that Im- doesn't fit. Just imagine, it's just like the guy you were talking about last week. In this area right now, you have, uh, I believe, Gary Ridgway killing people here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have, um, what's his name? Pinkton. Rob Pinkton. It's like, Jesus, there must be dead people everywhere. <laughs> Fucking A. Uh, one week to the day after murdering Simon, Clifford Olson was cruising the streets of Coquitlam. This time, he was traveling with 18-year-old Randy Ludlow, and for the first time in this case, we have a living eyeball witness of Olson's hunting techniques. Okay. This is Randy. Between 11 and noon on July 9th, we were cruising and drinking when Olson spotted a girl he obviously knew because he waved at her, she started smiling, and ran over to the car. The girl Cliff spotted was 15-year-old Judy Kozma and she was on her way to Richmond for a job interview at Wendy's. Olsen told her to hop on in, and they'd drop her off. Judy was stoked. She didn't want to take the bus, as it would have to go all the way through Vancouver. Olsen immediately started forcing beer on the two kids during the drive. They arrived at the Wendy's well before the interview. Cliff figured, since they were early, he would go grab a pint of rum and a couple more beers. He offered Judy a job washing windows for him at $13 an hour. She accepted, but still wanted to go get the interview experience at Wendy's. What is it with the washing windows? It's an easy job, and yeah. thirteen dollars an hour in nineteen eighty one is ridiculous. Okay. Do any of the squeegee squad people we've seen not look borderline suicidal? They are also ex convicts. Squeegee All squad. Squeegee squad hires ex cons. Okay, it's very it, good. Okay, I was going to say, I'm hoping you're meaning that's good because yeah. it gives them a. A second chance. Yes, because the ex-cons don't get shit as far gotcha. as... They're told, get a job, but yeah. who's going to hire you? <laughs> you ha- you're a felon? Yeah. You know, it's it's a hard... That's how America is. That's an automatic disqualification. It's like when... Uh, I mean, fuck! It's in Les Mis, too. Jean Valjean gets paroled from prison. He has to find a job. He's going around, and they're all like... <laughs> you're a fucking prisoner! I'm not giving you shit! Is and it- then he gets beaten up by the police. <sighs> But he becomes, like, the mayor of the town, doesn't he? Yeah, under a different name. (laughs) Yes. He has to, like, be a fraud. Yeah. (laughs) Olsen broke out three plastic cups and a can of Coke. He made three stiff drinks. Judy finished hers, but definitely did not want another one. Cliff mixed another round and forcefully encouraged her to drink it. Judy was anxious about her interview, and now even more so because she was drunk. So Clifford offered her three little green pills, which he said would help her sober up. He then told Randy to get out and drove off with Judy. The next time I saw Olsen, he said he dropped her off at Wendy's. I learned much later that he murdered Judy and then went on vacation the next day. Cliff Joan and the little baby Clifford went down to Not Sperry Farm in the States. Wow. Okay, mm. so we... Wow, that is a world-famous mm. thing. Holy shit. What a fucking, I don't know, this guy's insane. Was it better in the 80s, though? I don't know. 
I've only heard love it, but I've also heard people say it's lame compared to everything else. Yeah. Well, not scary farm is what everybody talks about. Or like not scary. (laughs) The detective responsible for investigating Ada Court's murder, Detective Forsyth, had been steadily building a case against Olson, compiling timelines, hundred plus convictions, and his recent criminal activities and accusations. Why does the detective's last name sound like a rare boss from Final Fantasy? Or a Pokemon. Yeah, <laughs> or a Pokemon. What is that yeah. one called? Uh Scyther? Oh Scyther. I thought his name was like Scythe 4. I was like, damn, I wonder if that's where they got his name What if from. he comes in and he's like trying to handle the papers, but he just keeps cutting <laughs> them off because he has like knife hands? God damn it, Forsyth. You You're a terrible all... detective. You're Turn in your all... badging gun. They're tossing him like a semen sample. He's trying to catch it. just comes all over him. <laughs> On July 15th, an emergency conference was held by the RCMP and local police departments from Vancouver, Richmond, New Westminster, Surrey, Burnaby, Coquitlam, Mission, Langley, Agassiz, and Maple Ridge concerning where the hell all of these children from the greater Vancouver area were disappearing to. Are these all towns within yes. there? Yes, yeah, okay. they're all municipalities, technically. Inter- interesting, okay. Forsyth came prepared with a 10-page presentation, and the conference was so impressed they decided to consider Clifford Olson as a likely spot suspect in at least some of the missing children cases. So Detective Pokemon, he's solid. He's in there. All right. The people in the lower mainland of BC were petrified. There was a serial killer on the loose, and as we know from previous episodes, police are scared to even say those words as they will spread panic and the police lose their perceived control over the situation mm. and the narrative at large. Oh, yeah. In the 80s, there's been a fucking flurry of them. Mm-hmm. So it's like... And all yeah. if serial killer is synonymous with out of control. Right. There, there's nothing we can do to stop this guy. Right. Yeah, because they, they don't really have a pattern necessarily, so... Well, they do, but it's I mean, like... it's like, it's a lot... What is it? When people are killing people they don't know, it's a lot harder to... Figure out what their next step is going to be. Mm-hmm. From November 1980 to July 1981, the Mounties in the Surrey Detachment processed over 2,000 missing persons cases and investigated over 18,000 criminal offenses. Of course, the overwhelming majority of the missing persons were runaway teens, and another high percentage of them were teens that stayed over at a friend's house past curfew without informing their parents. Thanks to Simon more of these runaway case files were being re-examined, and the working theory was, and still is, if a child under 10 goes missing, it's not likely to be Mm. from their own choice. If a child over 15 is missing, it's the opposite. Unless there's a predator. Right, right. I mean, yeah, I think (laughs) 15 and above is kind of where your hormones are just going everywhere. You're getting independent. You're spreading your, you're just flinging hormones everywhere. Yeah, you're like, fuck you, mom. I'm not listening to you. I'm leaving. I don't need this, mom. The boys from Good Charlotte are going to take care of me, mom. Oh, my God. My boyfriend, Evan, has his own place, and we're going to be happy for the rest of our life. Was Evan in Good Charlotte? (laughs) I don't know. I just pictured Evan as, like, that creepy, like, 21-year-old dude who has, like, 15-year-old girls over at his house all the time. Oh, you mean Casey when he was 21. (laughs) He offers him beer and everything. (sighs) Picks him up from high school. Yeah. 
Are you are you her dad? No, I'm her boyfriend. <laughs> or like Seth Rogen in um Oh yeah. Pineapple Express yeah. right there. Man, that chick was cute. Amber Heard, right? <laughs> is she the Wait, she's the one who is like um just trying to destroy Johnny Depp's name right now. Yeah, yeah. That's her. Yeah. Ooh, she's not she's not very nice. I can well, tell you that. Johnny Depp's probably a creep. Oh, for sure, but uh, <laughs> you can't go around telling people he's beating the shit out of you mm. when he's definitely or apparently not. I don't really know. Who could get beaten up by that little twig of a man, John Depp? Know. I think they've uh, unveiled he he loves the drugs a little bit. But did that surprise anybody? Uh, if you've seen him talk in public, it's mm. basically one slurred <laughs> syllable. <laughs> At the conference, Forsyth wanted to build a task force that included every detective, regardless of department, who had either dealt with Olson or might have an active missing persons file which fits the pattern. Unfortunately for Forsyth, the RCMP chain of command was going through some infighting political shit between lieutenants, majors, and commanders, which shut down the task force before it even started. Mm, always gotta get, always the fucking politics ruin everything. And it definitely affected the day-to-day operations that coincided with Clifford Olson's killing spree. (sighs) They're probably fighting over fucking the type of donuts that would come every morning. (laughs) (laughs) One department likes Long John's, one of them likes uh, Bear Claws, one of them likes Apple Fritters. What did uh, Terry just say in between the bumbles? (laughs) Apple Cider Donuts? Apple Cider Donuts. I did... Did we talk about uh, one of our Canadian fans sent us a picture of them eating a uh, beaver claw? Beaver or tail. Or beaver tail. Was it from that place? Beaver yeah, tails? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Was it big? It was big. It was, was big. Did it, it look delicious? A, it lo- looked absolutely delicious. God damn it. To Forsyth, things weren't happening fast enough. Politics and fighting amongst local departments in the Mounties certainly allowed obvious shit Olson was doing to be missed. Mm. July 23rd, 1981, eight days after the big police summit, Ray King Jr. went missing. This 15-year-old boy was spending his summer vacation at the Canada Manpower Youth Employment Center, building up a nice little bit of spending money for the coming school year. I don't know if I like that manpower. Man, The Manpower Youth <laughs> Employment Center? I, it just doesn't sound right. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that. Wouldn't you know it, a guy named Clifford Olson drove up to the center and had a job for him, cleaning a few windows for $13 an hour. There it is. That was big money to Ray, so he said, hell yeah, chained his bike up behind the building and hopped in the rental car. Olson drove them to Weaver Lake, past the popular camping ground, and took a dirt road down by Alpine Lake. Here he bludgeoned the boy's head in with rocks and dumped his body off the trail in a steep, densely wooded ditch. When the cops found his bike... They knew there was something seriously wrong. When a runaway makes his escape, he does one of three things with his bike. Use it, leave it at home, or sell it for a few bucks to get started. Right. You're not going to just have it dumped in, I'm assuming, a foresty area. No, no, no. Ditch. Chained up at the manpower center. Because he got in a car with... Gotcha. Yeah, he chained okay. it up behind there and got in the car with uh, <sighs> Clifford. On July 25th, two days later, a visiting student from Weinheim, Germany... Sigrund Arnd was spotted hanging out with Cliff Olson at a pub in Coquitlam and then later drinking beer by the train tracks. The really sad thing about this one, her family didn't even know she was missing until August 28th when her body was found partially buried in a ditch near Weaver Lake. I was going to say, how is she at the pub? But I guess the drinking age in Germany is like 12, so... But I, do, does she not get like that, um... Diplomatic community? Yeah. 
Plus, it's the 80s, so I'm sure. <laughs> Judging by how much drinking my dad did in the 80s, I'm guessing you could <laughs> pretty much get booze at anywhere. Yeah. Didn't matter how old you were. Yeah. Especially in Canada. Underrated drinkers there. Yeah. And mm. I think their drinking age is still 18 up there. Is it? Yeah. On July 29th, another teen vanished. 15-year-old Terry Lynn Carsons. She was just another youth looking for summer employment, so Olson's ruse went over perfectly. One lace drink was all it took to knock her out. He drove her into the wilderness, strangled her, burned her clothes, and threw her purse and shoes in the Fraser River. Do we know what... Are you going to go into what he's actually giving him? This mysterious GHB. green pill. Yeah, it's a Mickey. It's okay. the it's the it's gotcha. the fucking definition Mickey. Okay, I didn't know. Are, are they synonymous with like a green pill? Uh, I'm not sure or about that. Just, okay. Yeah, I'm not okay. sure. I'm just that. curious. I've never actually seen a real Mickey. Mm. I've just only heard it. Yeah, it's because you're not a fucking creep or a yeah. serial killer. Yeah, I know. You don't I really took GHB it. once, but I didn't know that there was a date rape drug. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was like, "It's cool." I was like, "Okay," and it was. I was all right. <laughs> Olson was a prime suspect in the Terry Lynn disappearance, and police watched him like a hawk, but they had nothing to charge him with. On July 29th, police stopped surveillance because, as the Mounties put it, it became obvious that Olson was on to them. Only two of the bodies that had been found so far were connected by the police, Darren Johnsrud and Judy Kozma. All the same, cops were absolutely convinced Simon Partington and Ada Court had been murdered as well. Christine Weller was still considered an unrelated case, and the rest were just missing persons. If he was, like, number one on the radar prior to him killing them, why weren't they watching him then? You got we, uh, Well, that's... he was not prime. He wasn't suspect prime mm, as of yet. Okay. They, okay. Had, they had a few interesting peoples of interest. <laughs> they probably like, okay, we, we're going to... Our prime suspects, Clifford Olson, um, Robert Picton... Gary Ridgway, Theodore Bundy. I mean, I think he was in this area too. Well, he was like Seattle. PNW, yeah, Pacific Northwest. Yeah, for sure. it's. Uh, I'm. I'm sure we're missing some. They were all up in this area. Man, that place breeds. Wait, where was uh, Unibobber from? Was he Idaho? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, me neither. Now I'm gonna sound know. like a fool. <laughs> On Thursday, July 30th, 1981, police had a simple strategy that they hadn't tried yet. Just try feeding his ego. Constable Fred Mayle of the RCMP was to schedule a meeting with Olson at a restaurant and ask him to be a consultant on the case, since he did such a good job helping solve the murder of Gene Dove by getting Marco to open up. He obviously had talent spotting and enticing pedophiles to tell him things. Wow, okay. They really Genius. fluffed his Yeah, they really fluffed his nuts about how, how much they needed him. I figured they were going to ask his advice on washing windows. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, you are obviously the window washing man of Canada. I've got vape juice stuck on my windows all <laughs> oh, in my house. Dude. How do you clean it, Mr. Olson? God, that stuff sticks. <laughs> it does you got to take a razor blade to it. <laughs> Olson thought it over for a quick second before, before saying, hell yeah, if you give me a salary of $3,000 a month, I could definitely provide information on the disappearance. With a smile and a nod, Olson said he'd report back as soon as he found something, and the officers watched their prime suspect of killing children walk out into the morning sun. After meeting with police, Olson's next stop was his lawyer's office. On his way there, however, he got distracted when 17-year-old Louise Chantran caught his eye. She was making the 10-minute walk from the diner where she worked as a waitress to the gas station to buy a pack of cigarettes. In between the restaurant and the store, however, Olson was able to get her in his car, 
Drugger, and head down the Killer Highway towards Whistler. It was named the Killer Highway for the countless fatal car crashes that occurred after a heavy snowfall. Gotcha. That's going to happen in Canada. Mm. Olson pulled off the highway north of Whistler Ski Resort, drove to a gavel pit, and bashed the girl's brains out with a hammer before burying her in a shallow grave. Luis's fellow employees at the diner called her parents when she didn't come back from the store, and thankfully they contacted the RCMP that night. Foul play was assumed from the get-go. Luis was not treated as a runaway. What what do we call his type of um, killer? They have organized, disorganized. He's definitely like a disorganized, what do they call that? Where they just do it in the spur of the moment. I forget what they call that. Was Bundy but... one too? Yeah, I think he was because they just like see somebody and be like, okay, I got to kill them. Yeah, and that's so when he's like, after the first one, you have everything planned. And after right. the 20th, you're like, where's the tire iron? But then like, uh, I don't know if Kemper, yeah, Kemper would be, I think an organized one because he had all the shit in the car and then he was like, okay, I'm going to go find her, groom him for a bit and then go kill him uh-huh. or whatever. I don't know. This is, right. He just seems to be, he sees somebody and he's like, okay, I got to go kill him. Like Gacy was like that too, actually. Right, yeah. right, right. Just like gets a, I don't know, this guy's fucking a creep. By the first week of August, panic was spreading. The media began running catchy headlines like, cunning killer with blazing eyes. And Summer Job Slayer eludes police. The political pressure was building every day. This case went unsolved. Finally, a task force was assembled almost a full month after Forsyth knew who was doing this already. After you said <laughs> Summer Job Slayer, I'm just picturing like those little shitty signs they ho- they post on like uh, intersections. You know, it's like call this number if you want a job. Oh yeah, It'd just be this guy. Rip a rip a tab if you want the number uh, and call us. We buy ugly houses. Yes. or looking for a summer college job, make up to twenty dollars an hour or yep. something. And then you call them and they're like, "Yeah, twenty bucks an hour if you have some college degree, <laughs> and that's not even worth it for whatever shitty." Labor or if job it's like is. a door to door sales job and you have to like fucking get these insane numbers to get that shit. Cutco and shit. Yeah. Superintendent Bruce Northrup was put in charge of the task force and really wanted to try and help quell the public panic. I felt strongly the family of the victims shouldn't hear new disturbing updates from the media first. They deserved every consideration available. I should know they were not forgotten in the rush of police work. He wanted to just make sure they were up to speed at mm. all times before. Like, you want to hear new details about your child From being the... murdered in the papers, the sensationalized fucking papers. Right, right. Unlike, uh, like, if an athlete learns on social media they've been cut hey, from been... the team <laughs> prior to anybody else telling them. Oh, that poor linebacker. <laughs> In 1981, British Columbia was covered by a dozen individual city police forces and over 200 detachments of Mounties who, unlike our federal police like the FBI, DEA, ATF, the RCMP had federal, provincial, and city policing responsibilities. So they can share horses. They can definitely. If they need to. Mm -hmm. They don't have to, they don't have like different breeds for different departments Mm -hmm. or anything. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. It's a lot of work, though. You have to do federal police work, provincial, and city. Right. It's just so weird. I think we've been mentally just warped as Americans to just see a red-suited man 
on his fucking horse, but obviously they're not actually like that. Every time mm-hmm. I hear Mountie, that's all I can think about. Mm-hmm. Goddamn Rocky and Bullwinkle. Absolutely. God well, damn it. Uh, like we have Texas Rangers, and they look exactly like you think they should. <laughs> they have big old hats on. Right. Six, that's a personal six guns choice, on their hand. Actually, they, it's a, the hat uniform? is a required part it's of the a, uniform. Yep. It has to be a cowboy hat. It has to be a cowboy, a Western style hat. There. I called. wonder what the limit on rhinestones is. <laughs> Unlimited. Unlimited rhinestones. You can make it all Texas out of rhinestones. Texas Ranger hat. Yeah. <laughs> they can look like fucking Brett Michaels. Yes. Ugh. Morale was very low, and subordinates would backdoor their supervisors up the chain of command, causing a huge mistrust and cynicism within the majority of departments. Low morale was only one of the three major problems facing the investigation. The other two were transfers of key officers and shortages of staff, which resulted in overworked police. When Bruce Northorpe took over the investigation, he brought with him an aura of leadership. The cops fell in line behind him, and Olson was officially named the prime suspect. Surveillance would resume post-haste, but he was still just as slippery as always. Olson would stop in the middle of the street, pull sudden U-turns, run reds, and would make high-speed turns the wrong way down one-way streets, stop, and reverse once the trail car zoomed past. Jesus, what the fuck's he driving? A fucking Chevy Cavalier? Uh, one of, like, he rents cars up the yin-yang to, like... So, so technically, O.J. Simpson and whatever that rental company... Avis? Was he with Avis? Avis? They're oh, to I blame. can't remember if he was with Avis now, and we're gonna get sued if he wasn't. <laughs> Avis, Enterprise... Uh, I don't think it was Enterprise. I don't think they were around mm-hmm. back then. I think then. they're a new one. Yeah. Sixth... I remember we, I had a, we, for work, when I had to go to Texas for training, we had to rent a sixth whatever car. I get fucking daily emails from, like, nobody rents a car every single day. No. I don't think, maybe. Unless you're Clifford Olson. Yeah, Cliff Olson. How many emails would Clifford be getting from six? He probably still gets them. He's (laughs) probably probably in jail. Yeah. In jail. This is where the task force noticed Olson's habit of continually changing rentals. In fact, Clifford drove incessantly. Over a three-month stretch, Olson drove over 14,000 miles in 15 different rental cars. Jesus. On one of his rides, after evading his tail, Clifford decided to take the ferry over to Vancouver for some breaking and entering. After doing two houses, Olson spotted a couple of young women hitchhiking and decided, hey, when in Rome. Mm. So he pulled over and got the two of them in his car. Roughly three hours later... His car was picked up again by RCMP, veering across every lane on the highway, including the shoulder. Olson sped off the main road down a dirt trail, kicking up dust and rocks. Moments later, two RCMP cars blocked off the entrance to the trail. Two more uniformed Mounties followed the car's trail on foot, and as they were approaching, they could see three people standing outside the car passing a bottle back and forth. As officers advanced, police heard Olson telling one of the girls to take a walk. When she didn't, he started yelling and raising his fists, so police swarmed. When Olson spotted the officers closing in out of the bushes, he took off at a full sprint back to his car, threw it in gear, and roared back down the dirt trail, but was arrested at the roadblock. Good. In the rental, they found a green address book with the name of Judy Cosma written on it. At the time of Olson's arrest, he had killed ten children in southern B.C., but only three bodies had been discovered and linked. It sounded like, through this episode so far, in my position, it sounds like you've listed like a million kids. Yeah. And it's yeah. only ten. Yeah. <sighs> Maybe that's just like the brutality of them. That's but, um, it, yeah. I was going to say, Jesus, him 
fucking going down the dirt road and shit. It just reminds me of like a Canadian goddamn Dukes of Hazard thing going on here. <laughs> a dark Canadian Dukes <clears throat> of Hazard. So at least the whoever he picked up, they aren't harmed. Yep. Okay. Yep. Thank God. August six was a momentous day. Northrop declared. It was the catalyst for the events that would take Olsen off the streets of Canada until he dies. It was also the beginning of several days of hard, methodical police work. Solving a murder usually comes down to a lucky break, as we have learned in every episode. Mm. The extensive national media coverage in Canada was equivalent to the Yorkshire Ripper in Great Britain and the Atlanta child murders in the States. In fact, an HR minister in the government would say, We have our own little lane going on. Ugh. North I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's did fucked. you did you listen to the Atlanta Monster? Mm-mm. Really, the podcast series, no. pretty good. Oh, it's pretty about good. Wayne. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. It has like a bunch of old newscasts and shit on there. Pretty cool. good. Cool. Very uh, took over the city for sure. Northorp responded to this weird statement. I think our police in total did a tremendous job. All you have to do is compare the length of time it took the police in the states to solve. Their serial killings, 29 blacks from the age 7 to 28 were murdered between July 79 and May 81. Also, all of Wayne Williams' victims had been found. Not so in this case. All right, Northup, you asshole. Wayne was killing black kids, which people cared much mm. less about than little white kids. And if you listen to that podcast, um, Wayne was definitely killing kids, but it sounded like others were killing kids as well in addition to him sure so it was kind of like it a was lot a violent of, time for children in the 80s and yeah, 70s dude. a lot of i know i mean I, I was born in the 80s but thankfully you know none, i didn't have to deal with any right, of that right but uh but yeah i would recommend that podcast to anyone by the atlanta way. monster mm -hmm. right. august 12th was the day of destiny destiny <laughs> it was clifford olson's <laughs> last day as a free man the decision was made to arrest him and break him through intense interrogation. On August 18th, Olson was charged with first-degree murder for Judy Cosma, which ultimately resulted in a full confession. He just started spewing it all out. Nope. Huh? No. Nope. Northorpe had been heading the task force for three weeks with no real guidelines to follow. This was the first time a province-wide task force had ever been assembled, so there was no real template. Northrop was about as unflappable as they come, but at 8.35 a.m. on August 21st, Northrop's jaw hit the fucking oh table when one of his detectives walked up to him and said, Olson wants to make a deal and give us 11 bodies for $100,000. This isn't a fucking game show. <sighs> so I, yeah, he doesn't just start spewing. He's I, trying to make it financially viable. What's he going to do with 100 grand in jail? Well... He'll have I mean, great commissary forever. He can, get, he can get all the Snickers bar he wants. <laughs> all the Tim Hortons he could possibly desire. Oh, yeah. Northorp chewed his nails and perspired as he considered his next move. He knew they were so close to breaking this case wide open, but would Olsen really be stupid enough to risk never seeing the outside of an institution for the rest of his life for $100,000? But still, without this deal, there was no concrete evidence that the missing kids and murders were related. At this point... The bodies of Christine Weller, the first victim, Darren Johnsrud, the third victim, Jody Cosma, the seventh victim, and King Jr., the eighth victim, had all been recovered. So Olson put forward a schedule to show the police the other missing kids, one at a time, in a specific order, and then the money would be placed in his account. 
The Crown agreed to this deal. Here was his schedule. He would show them Chartrand at Whistler, Dino at Surrey, Carson at Chilliwack, and then four separate locations where evidence would be found, Court at Agassiz, Wolfsteiner at Chilliwack, Partington at Richmond, and the German girl at unspecified location. He actually wrote German girl on there because he didn't know her name. Uh, I was just going to say, how that he knows all these people's names. The media. Media. Oh, I gotcha. I wonder if he actually remembered any of their first or last name. I doubt he even knew. I don't know. Some of these guys, this is like their pride and joy, so I, I don't know. But I just don't think he was, like, premeditally stalking these kids. He was just grabbing them off the street, you know. Yeah, and just took advantage when he could. Mm. Oh, and this is him at the bottom of his schedule. This is Olsen saying. You'll get statements when we get to the bodies, and I'll get you all the evidence, including things only the killer could possibly know. Mm. He's proud of this. Yes. He is very proud he of this. He loves himself. Because of Olsen's extensive history of escape, When out on body recovery, he was placed in a car with three unarmed officers handcuffed to one of them. The car would be escorted by four more police cars, two in front and two behind, each with two officers armed with revolvers, shotguns, and rifles. When Northorp informed District 2 that Olsen would be riding through, they launched a helicopter for extra security. If escape was on his mind... He would not secede. Wonderful. Um, yeah, he's a kid killer. I don't really think he's much of a threat at all. <laughs> and he got beat up as a little kid. So you but know he's he escaped can't... seven times yeah. from prison. Yeah, he's, I mean, there's that. Olsen's cash for bodies deal was kept secret for almost six months before it finally leaked out to the media. On January 14th, 1982, the Vancouver Sun headline read, Olsen was paid to locate bodies. <laughs> and the next day's headline, Olsen deal greeted by disgust. Yeah, I bet it did. It was fucked up. I've never even heard of them doing that before. (laughs) Many thought it was absolutely reprehensible that Olsen could profit from his heinous crimes. None of them more so than Northam. He was able to maneuver Olsen into paying his wife and not him directly. It would still cause mass public outrage. Maybe it wouldn't have if the two were divorced or even separated and she was supplying info on his past crimes but that was not the case. They were still technically married, and and she had not dimed on him. But she didn't know anything. Right. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, he's doing this shit, like, so randomly that she probably doesn't think he's really up to, up to anything. Right. You know? Northorpe had to admit that he felt tremendous relief that the killings were solved and no more children could die by Olsen's hands. When asked what evidence was found at the site... Mentioned in the schedule, Northrop said, I won't go into detail. Essentially, they were items which could be established as belonging to each of the four victims whose bodies had been found without Olsen's help, thus establishing he was the killer. Hmm. Only the killer would have had knowledge of these articles and where they were hidden. So, okay, Mm -hmm. okay. The Attorney General of British Columbia, Alan Williams, was stewing over how such a deal could be made. But... I'm going to be honest with you. I really think his outrage was fake. I think it was a put on because he was supposed to be outraged. Alligator tears. Yes. Bastard. In exchange for a measly $100,000, the attorney general could guarantee a first degree murder conviction, ease the anxiety of the parents of the missing kids, and halt both the terror gripping BC and a very expensive police investigation. Without this deal, there was no hard evidence linking Olson to anything. 
And as a man who went in and out of prison as often as an old man goes pee, Attorney General Williams knew Olson wouldn't talk without the evidence. I mean, yeah, I guess when you think about it that way, it's good. I'm sure the parents of the victims wanted to know or have the bodies of them and all of that and make sure this guy wasn't abducting any more kids or anything like that. But that's that, just so. not the way to do it. You I don't know. pay a man $100,000. I know, oh. but... Would you rather do that or I let him out of prison? Ten out of ten times, mm. I would pay $100,000 to make sure he is in jail forever. Mm. Olson would naturally undergo psych evaluation, and the chief psychiatrist at the Penetang Mental Health Center, one Dr. Russell Fleming, explained the nature of the extreme psychopath as a person with severe antisocial personality disorder that leads to criminal behavior. Mm. Fleming would also speculate as to why Olson could maintain his composure and radiate serenity. There's a core group of psychopaths, of whom Olson clearly is one, who can be intriguing, charismatic, engaging, predictable, and sinister, with the cop with the capacity to manipulate those around him. Recent studies indicate there may be a genetic component to psychopathy, a failure or misfire of the brain. At any rate, their brains certainly are different. Mm -hmm. It's doubtful we will ever fully understand the disorder. That is true. That's a true very valid point. We, It's like, we have, and the brain's a uh, big mystery piece of, I don't know, Toothpaste, cells. yeah. Toothpaste? Uh, that's, they say that has the you consistency can, of toothpaste. Can you, like, pull it apart? Like I don't think so. I think it's kind of like together. a pudding. Yeah. Pudding, okay. Yeah. What Fleming is saying in a nutshell is, the psychopath has deficient effective responses to people. When you combine this with Olson's pedophilia and sadism, mm. it's not at all surprising that he graduated to serial murder. There are a couple really rough-sounding examples of Olson's sadistic behavior that further support the evidence of psychopathic behavior. He once injected air bubbles into one of his victim's arms, but when he realized he missed the vein, he just bashed the victim's head in. He called victims' families and played tape recordings of their oh children being murdered. He ran down one of the victims with his rental car, and not to mention the violent, controlling, manipulative treatment of his wife. Mm. He literally sounds like Patrick Bateman from fucking um, American Psycho. Yeah. Just, like, kills him any way possible. Yeah. Definitely. Wait, can you not die from air bubbles if they don't get into your vein? I'm not sure. I'm uh, not that, sure. That was always like one of my biggest fears. Hell yeah. When my I started doing the air hose thing where you put it close to your skin, oh, yeah. and then my dad's like, don't do that, you can yeah. get fucking air bubbles. Yeah. Like, oh, fuck. I know, because it feels weird to like... Mm. Psh, psh. Mm-hmm. I think you pretty much guaranteed to die when that happens. Yeah. Mm. Children were easy prey, and well aware of this, Clifford Olson took advantage of innocence. He told interrogators that he quickly figured out what teens liked and that they were all alike, and they will tell you just about anything if you look and talk like you're interested in hiring them. Mm. January 11th, 1982, the trial opened. The prosecution did a fantastic job laying the foundation of their case, painting Olson as a man that would appear pleasant, friendly, and charming, and would openly approach the children. He was an impressive personality that would take the kids to construction sites and show them the job. That's what he was best at, gaining the kids' confidence. He's not a bad-looking guy, and he reminds the kids of their fathers, so they would follow along, and he would ply them with drugs and booze. Robert Shands, who would serve as Olson's defense attorney, intended to show the court 
that his client had been brainwashed into adopting Marcou's personality. Oh, I don't think that's a thing, sir. <sighs> Some evidence to support this. One of the kids was found literally a hundred yards from where Marcou left Jenny Dove's body. Olsen used the same type of ruse and pickup lines to abduct his victims. After Olsen's meeting with Marcou, he de developed an insatiable appetite for child porn. I don't think it works like that. No. I definitely don't think it works like No. Because what about the poor kid who works at Best Buy, opens a computer with some guy with child porn on it? He's not all of a sudden going to start watching child porn. No. Jesus, no. That would be the most <laughs> insane jump in reasoning of all. Yeah. And that's what they're trying to do uh, here. It is. The prosecution called their next witness to refute this, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Stanley Semrau, who said, More likely, Olsen wanted to experience what Marco experienced. He essentially went from being a nobody to a somebody, and in his own eyes, he has celebrity status. Mm -hmm. He sees himself as the ultimate serial killer. Mm -hmm. Don't they all, though, mm -hmm. after they, you know kill or whatever they just think oh i'm the ultimate badass how much notoriety we were can just, i get uh you know fan we were talking about the uh zodiac letter right oh i heard that got solved yeah right. they did and essentially you read it and it's like this guy's fucking blowing himself mm. and then it's like uh all these dudes their letters and everything they're just fucking blowing themselves the whole time did did cracking the cipher get them any closer to finding no a no it's just him rambling on that about sucks. he's not scared to die and this and that and he's powerful blah 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 hey that's one good thing that's come out of quarantine a lot of people have just had nothing <laughs> had to time do to read they're, just ciphers. Cracking, they're just trying crack ciphers <laughs> the trial came to a quick conclusion after only three days when olsen changed his plea to guilty <laughs> why did he change his plea well there's speculation that after Olsen heard his high-pitched, whiny voice on tape, Ooh. it became obvious to him he was sounding weak and stupid. He wouldn't be a good podcaster. Mm. This, of course, did not match up with his own delusions of being the big, powerful, monstrous serial killer <laughs> that was being portrayed in the papers. Just as Harry McKay said, I don't have the words to describe the enormity of your crimes and the heartbreak and anguish. You have caused so many people. Nope punishment a civilized country could give you would be adequate enough you should never be granted parole for the remainder of your days it would be foolhardy to let you at large the uh the uh civilized country bit is a little bit uh, uh well it's definitely shade. it's definitely shade mm. yeah it's definitely shade at the, at America maybe he's throwing it yeah i was going to say <laughs> is he throwing it at America there yeah Crown Prosecutor John Hall was asked by reporters about his motive, and he said, Who knows these things? It's difficult to read people's minds. He is insane in the broad mm. sense of the word, but not legally. He is a broken psychopath. He may believe he has real feelings, but it's all surface. He doesn't have a conscience. Isn't a broken psychopath an oxymoron? Yeah, that would be like a healed person, <laughs> like a regular guy. I always think of my favorite that the teachers told us, a big shrimp. That's the example. Jumbo of, shrimp. Jumbo shrimp, that's yeah. what it is. Jumbo shrimp. Mm. Mm -hmm. In 1982, Olsen was transferred to Kingston Penitentiary in Ontario, the place where Canada's most violent and exotically perverse criminals are held. He was kept in cell 21 H-block in a heavy steel vestibule lined with plexiglass that was attached to the front of his cell to prevent people from throwing things at him. At least he'd be safe from coronavirus. Yeah. 
<laughs> His cell was described as meticulously neat, with some books about religion and criminal law, and a collection of puzzles of mountain and lake scenes, much like the sites where he had left the bodies of the children he murdered. Did he find God? Of course. Okay. They all tried all it. All right. It's fine. <laughs> the puzzles thing, it's like, I wonder if he whacked off to that, like, thinking Ooh. about... What he had done in those areas. Yeah. Probably did, honestly. It had to bring back memory. Mm. With Olsen in prison for the rest of his natural life, the families of the murdered children banded together to draft a petition to stop Olsen from benefiting financially for killing their kids. They even were able to collect 100,000 signatures, but it didn't make a bit of difference. The federal government turned a blind eye to the family's plight. Mm. Growing public support, on the other hand, helped to bolster the families. After a long public battle... Seven of the families decided to sue, naming Olson, his wife Joan, his attorney Schutz, and the lawyer that authorized the cash for bodies deal on behalf of the province. In the fall of 1984, Supreme Court of BC examined the deal to make a final binding decision on the 100,000. The media ripped apart Joan and three-year-old Cliffy, calling them Rosemary's baby and demon seed. Oh my god. The insults and jeering even extended to the courtroom, when the name-calling got so bad, she finally responded, It floors me to think that anyone would think that I had anything to do with this. I cried so hard over this. I don't know how to explain it. I can't think about them too much. I'm just so glad the children could be buried. Yeah, she probably didn't know shit. Mm -mm. She was busy trying to not get fucking beaten mm. by him. And you know, I'm assuming old Cliffy the Third here probably changed his name. He definitely did. Okay. He definitely did. Okay. Because I was reading like three different things, mm -hmm. and it, he was, it had different names. Like, okay. Someone was Scott Clifford, so I'm sure he changed it to Scott. Yeah, I'm sure you probably don't want that, that fucking name the rest of your life. Joan went on to explain how she had nightmares of little Simon Partington begging her for help. She had left an alcoholic, abusive husband for a monster that was so much worse. Oh, I hate him. He terrorized me, beat me, and scared me. The Supreme Court decided that Joan and the two lawyers were required to pay back the 100000 plus interest in court fees. That was then overturned by the Court of Appeals. Joan and Cliff could now keep the money forever with no takebacks. And that's where, yeah, that's what that's ha where that, it ends that was the there. resolution of that one. Okay. When asked how Clifford III was handling all of this, Joan said, he knows who his father is because he pieced it together from TV. I just explained to him that his dad was a bad person and has to spend the rest of his life in jail and that we would never see him again. He seemed to accept it. Whether he will when he is older, I'm not certain. Because he's still three. Three. Yeah. Yeah, he's... Yeah, you're not going to be able to accept much at three. Yeah, he probably can't even comprehend. Yeah. Ah, uh, someone murdering that many people. Yes. Honestly, so poor poor young Clifford. Olson was described in an article as the most prolific complainer in the Canadian <laughs> prison system. Between 1981 and 1991, he had lodged 19 complaints requesting legal action. One of the complaints was for not being allowed to access the Book of the Month Club. He wants to read Oprah, baby. A federal judge who had received most of Olson's complaints eventually got annoyed and told him to... Stop whining. It's <laughs> only <laughs> <Something> my dad. <laughs> in December of 1992, Olson was transferred to Saskatchewan Penitentiary in Prince Albert, a higher security prison, because in Kingston, he had been caught with the key to his leg cuffs hidden in his rectum. 
It was discovered during an x-ray. Wow. How the fuck did he even get that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe his butt's like a fucking vacuum just sucked it up. <laughs> like Kirby? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After serving 16 years in August 96, Clifford Olson applied for parole under the Faint Hope Clause, <laughs> a section in Canada's criminal code that states that a convicted murderer serving a life sentence can have their eligibility for parole reviewed after serving 15 years, even if their original sentence stated they would not be eligible until they served 25. The clause was meant to lower the risk of violent prisoners lashing out in prison due to frustration and a feeling they have nothing to lose. I mean, I can see where that could be beneficial for people who get life sentences or no parole and maybe they... Have nothing to lose, but still well, a faint no, hope. No, I'm saying like maybe... Somebody who's getting that and the crime doesn't really fit Guess the what? punishment. This is only for murderers. Only for murderers. Yep. Gotcha. Theft, okay. embezzlement, life sentence, stuff like that, not for them. It's for violent only offenders murderers. only. Yep. Okay. At 57 years of age, Olson appeared even slighter than he had in 1981. In court today, he was wearing a lovely little tattered red DOC t-shirt with his legs shackled and sitting behind a double pane of bulletproof glass. He was acting as his own attorney and vigorously appealing to the jury to allow his parole. He claimed there were many unsolved cases he could convince, confess to, including some murders he did with a friend. He said he was involved with the Green River Killer and he could help solve that case. Oh my god. The lead investigator on the Green River case just laughed and said, Olson would had to be a magician able to tunnel his way from a prison in Canada down to Seattle to help kill these women. Plus, yeah. that's not his M.O. either. Mm -hmm. But any port in a storm. Mm. Northrop backed that up by saying that nothing Olson says can be believed unless it's confirmed by an independent party. Olson then called his character witness to the stand. His character witness, Dr. Prison Tony Marcus, who mm. claimed that Olson is still as devious and dangerous as he was the day he went in and shows no sign of burnout, which is actually more dangerous. Olson's second character witness said virtually the same thing. There is no safe way to release Olson. He is and always will be unchanged. He chose these people? Those were his people that he okay. chose. Okay. Well, maybe they convinced them that, oh, we'll help you, and then... On the day of, that. Like, yeah, don't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> we got you. We got you, dude. Forensic scientist Dr. Stanley Semrau, who had testified in the first trial, was still working and testified again, saying he is completely untradeable, even more dangerous than in 1981 because he revels in his celebrity status, saying, Olsen is addicted to murder and is the most extreme, sexual, deviant, most disturbed, most pathological personality I've ever encountered. Okay. In his closing statements, Olson addressed the jury directly. Ladies and gentlemen, have you seen me before? Do I look like a raving lunatic? The jury was able to remain silent, but the victim's family <laughs> started laughing uncontrollably Thank and God. a loud yes reverberated throughout the courtroom. <laughs> At the end of the hearing, amidst clapping, yelling, and whistling, the judge announced that he was canceling the proceedings as he'd had enough of this asshole and adjourned the court. It only took the jurors 15 minutes to return their verdict, rejecting Olson's bid for parole. Whilst being walked out of the courtroom, a reporter asked, what were you going to do if you actually got out? Olson just grinned back and said, I'd pick up where I left off. You bet your ass he would. His next parole hearing was in 2006, where he made more outrageous claims, like the U.S. had granted him clemency because he had information regarding the 9-11 mm. tax. He was denied. 
He applied again in 2010, also unsuccessful. In September 2011, it was reported Olson had terminal cancer and had been transferred to a hospital in Laval, Quebec. He died on 9-30-11 at the age of 71. Jesus. Okay, so this guy is a fucking psycho nutbag. Holy shit. Lived way too long for someone who did this much terrible shit. Hey, if he had done this stuff in a more civil in a less civilized country, Apparently. he would have had a paralyzing agent running through his veins while they pumped and killed him. Yeah. Okay. He would well, have gotten death penalty here for this. No. Yeah, question. yeah. I'm still not sure how I completely feel about death penalty, but Me neither. Um, we're glad that he's off the streets. It's Actually, sad. I would say I'm against it because <laughs> it, the original thing was I'd rather let a hundred, a hundred guilty men go free than execute one innocent mm. man. And there is too many innocent people that have been executed and probably still are on death. Well, row. the other thing is it's not a deterrent for any, like people are going to commit murder. They're not going to be like, Oh, I better not kill anybody. I might yeah. get the death penalty. As it's a just punch, l- like for, t- I don't know. I get the eye for the eye thing, but it's like. Like for the Boston bomber, uh, I personally love the idea that he's, that his death is a date on the calendar and he's going to feel it the mm. whole time. But like, he'll never get there. You know that. Those terroristic threats. I, I don't know. I, there's some things where it's like this person needs to be destroyed. So mm. that they can't, there's no possible way they could, like, sneak their cum out and get somebody <laughs> pregnant or something like that. But I don't know. Sneak their cum out. Have, give it to a nurse. Who put the in fuck a is going to sneak their cum Prison out? Prison nurses are crazy, man. They're going to sneak they, like, their cum out. They, like, feel for these people. They I bring mean, them stuff. And... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess so. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I get, I'm, Canada doesn't have a death penalty at all, I'm assuming. Nope. Abolish 1976, I believe. It's just America, and I'm going to assume... Totalitarian dictatorships and stuff, yeah. I don't know if you call that a death penalty. I think that's just killing people. Beheading, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like North Korea, I don't think they do death penalty. I think they just kill people. Yeah. Do you ever (laughs) see the one where they, like, if you disrespect the... If you're part of, like, their nobility class, and you say something against the party, and they, like, put you in the middle of the street and shoot an anti-tank fucking launcher at you it's great britain you can north korea <laughs> okay north korea oh yeah yeah that's not surprising in the least yeah bit. yeah uk <laughs> great britain didn't Shoot you see when with anti-tanks didn't you see when they they were having the baby all the uh i can't even think of their name now megan merkel and who'd she marry prince albert <laughs> prince william or harry i don't know <laughs> You could tell it's Prince Albert because every time he walks, you just hear metal clanking together. His balls and dick just clank all day long. Oh if my your God. balls and dicks clank all day long, uh, tell us about it. Uh, submit a form on our website, bumblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, ladies and gentlemen, if you really love us, right? And I know you do. I mm. know you love us. Mm-hmm. And I just really love you, too. You should follow us on Patreon. At patreon.com slash bumblebuttpodcast, and you should buy a shirt from our website, bumblebuttpodcast.com. Hell yeah. And if you're a real hero, you will uh, leave us a nice little review on uh, iTunes. iTunes. (laughs) Cody, do we have any uh, written, or do we just have numbers? We do, actually, and prior to you getting here, I was chuckling to myself because it's Quite good, and you'll find out here in a second. This is so far so good by I Yo Gif, okay? All right. 
fairly new listener, not sure, not quite sure why they keep saying they're the only podcast that uploads weekly when that's <laughs> definitely not true, LOL. But besides that and some other weird claims slash statements, <laughs> I'm still enjoying this podcast so far. Good info and slightly funny banter. Nice. So uh, I love that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's I brutal. I don't know if he if he's getting our humor by saying that or if he's not under doesn't get that you're joking and either i don't way, even want to know I don't either way it's know. fucking hilarious and thank you so much for that kind madam or sir or wonderful whatever you go by uh yeah it, it's so fucking funny that's great yeah either they don't get it or they get it so hard that yeah. we don't get it <laughs> either way thank you so much it's fucking great we also got a wonderful email from ben. oh i'm glad you're reading this because this is awesome too Guys, just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed your podcast. I bumbled onto it over the summer, and I truly rank you right at the top. Topics are great, and I think you do a good job researching and presenting, mixed with just the right amount of camaraderie. Hell yeah. Even though I know very little about gaming, I even enjoy listening to you two talk about that. And the Between the Bumble shows are awesome, and it's just cool to listen to you have off-the-cuff conversations. Being from rural Ohio and employed both as a factory worker and a farmer, it's nice to hear... Hosts that have a clue about Midwestern life. Some other podcasts I listen to make me want to strangle the host (laughs) as they just fuck everything up and are hard to listen to, not knowing how things are outside the city or sitting behind a desk in corporate America. Thanks again for being fucking awesome. Hope you continue to have great success podcasting. Ben. Thank you so much, Ben. That was a delightful Wonderful. Love it. Thank you, Ben. You're a king. So send us that. We'll read that shit on the show, too. I don't see why not. You should read that other one. Also, we have another awesome email. Hell yeah. This one is from uh, Katie, but not the Katie. Hello. Just started listening to your podcast. When listening to part two of Father Hans and his relationship with the (laughs) housekeeper, apparently sexual relationships involving the housekeeper were super common. How do I know? My great-grandmother recently died, and my family decided to research her past. She was adopted in the 1910s, and we only knew very little. It turns out my grandma is the product of a priest and a housekeeper in Massachusetts. I don't think the priest (laughs) chopped the housekeeper up, but I thought it was interesting that I'm the product of blasphemy. (laughs) Great show, but listening to a bunch in quarantine. Have a great day. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. I, Dude, when I read... This is how dark our humor is. When I read that, I don't think he chopped him up or whatever. I was just like dying laughing. I couldn't quit laughing. I was like, that's great. Oh, that's so good. Humans are going to bang. I'm sorry. It's just what's going to happen. Haters you know? going to hate, 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 Catholic hey, priests need priests to- Priests are going to fuck, fuck. <laughs> they need to like just get with the times and let priests marry if they men, were women, fucking, whatever if they want. If they were fucking adult women and men, they wouldn't have to fuck the children so right, much. Right, If they could have I consensual, mean, loving relationships. Some of them still would, but Definitely. maybe not all of them. I don't know. Definitely. It's hard to Someone's say. Someone's always going to fuck a kid. And that is just the goddamn disgusting disgusting truth. Right, right. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Next week, Cody will take over the story reigns again, and we will uh, have ourselves some fun. You know what's a week after that? Nope. Fucking false. Whoa! Hell yeah. Shit, it's the 12th of December right now. I think I got some special plans, so we'll talk about it next week. All right, and I'll I'll work on something, too. (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. I want you to all have a great weekend, unless it's Tuesday. See ya. Bye. (laughs) 